All right. Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. I'm excited to tell you that my father has been busy at work alongside our brothers at Remnant and the Rising Church. Those ministries are advancing the kingdom of God in ever-increasing ways. In Denton, we've seen the ordination of a new local pastor. Amen. And in Crystal Lake, the raising of scores of men who will go to the nations of the world. Additionally, Pastor Matthew is on his way to join in the work with my father and the brothers at the Rising Church as we speak. In this body, our engagement with the Book of Acts has yielded a greater urgency to perform both the deeds and teachings of Jesus. We've been benefited by the brave actions and teachings of men like Peter, John, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, and Paul, as preserved in Luke's historical account. The book of Acts covers a period of about 30 years, and we are now beginning to near the end of that time frame. With that in view, the record of Acts will not in any way slow down or become more sedate. Tonight's content, Acts 22:30 through Acts 23, represents a significant turn of events in our narrative. Yeah. Last week, we saw Paul address the crowd of Jewish men as brothers and fathers from the steps of the barracks known as the Antonia Fortress. This testimony was not well received, and as a result, the commander of the Antonia Fortress has summoned the members of the Sanhedrin to learn more about the charges against Paul. This is going to afford Paul the opportunity to formally address the members of the Sanhedrin, which is the same governing authority that Jesus, the 12 apostles, and Stephen stood before. In the case of Jesus and Stephen, the result of standing before the Sanhedrin was the reception of the death penalty. In the case of the apostles, at least in the early chapters of Acts, the result was a beating. When considering these facts, it is no wonder that Paul faced three waves of initial testing and challenge from his friends and brothers regarding his conviction that he must go to Jerusalem. After seeing the resolve in Paul, that was a work of being bound by the Spirit of God, Paul's friends and brothers concluded that God's will must be done no matter what was awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. The completion of Paul's testimony in Jerusalem will set events into motion that have seemingly uncertain outcomes, but are in fact a part of Adonai's sovereign plan. A witness from Paul must be left in Jerusalem, not only to the crowds, but also the governing body of leaders in Jerusalem, and then ultimately also in Rome. Tonight, we are going to lightly review some of the elements that have built up to this present point. Additionally, we will work to help you build the setting of the events in your mind prior to entering into our text for tonight. So to begin with, you will remember that Paul was in no ordinary state during these events. Let's go to this slide titled The Realization of a Priestly Life. The time that the Nazareth vow lasted was not a lazy life, involving a withdrawal from the duties of citizenship, but it was perfectly reconcilable with the performance of all domestic and social duties, the burial of the dead alone accepted. The position of the Nazarite, as Philo, Maimonides, and others clearly saw, was a condition of life consecrated to the Lord, resembling the sanctified relation in which the priest 
stood to Jehovah and differing from the priesthood solely in the fact that it involved no official service at the sanctuary and was not based upon a divine calling and institution, but was undertaken spontaneously for a certain time and through a special vow. The object was simply the realization of the idea of a priestly life with its purity and freedom from all contamination, from everything connected with death and corruption, and self-surrender to God stretching beyond the deepest early ties. In this respect, the Nazarite sanctification, Nazarite sanctification of life was a step toward the realization of the priestly character which had been set before the whole nation as its goal at the first time, at its time of the first calling. And although it was simply the performance of a vow, and therefore a work of, of perfect spontaneity, it was also a work of the Spirit of God which dwelt in the congregation of Israel, so that Amos could describe the raising up of Nazarites along with prophets as a special manifestation of divine grace. So our early chapters in Acts consisted of growing conflict between two groups, yeah. that being the corrupt and defunct leadership that held possession of the brick and mortar temple, and the 12 fire-validated apostles who led the temple that is the body of Christ on earth. The ongoing testimony of Paul's Nazareth status was an indication of pure personal devotion and the realization of a call to a heavenly priesthood, first given to national Israel, later also expanding to include mysterious graftings like us. Tonight, you will see Paul, who is a participator in the, in the heavenly priesthood, coming to direct conflict with a man who sits in the office of high priest, but dishonors the office with his corrupt conduct. These events have been arranged by the spirit of Jesus and serve to illustrate that it is in fact the followers of the way who are operating in the original purpose for national Israel and not the corrupted leaders. So we're going to take a slide to refresh your memory of the three prior conflicts recorded in Acts between the followers of the way and the leaders of the Sanhedrin. We have a slide for you. Consistent conflicts. Look at these scriptures. Acts 4, picking up in 1. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly family. Acts 5, 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And Acts 6, picking up the 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? In our sessions together, we noted that these conflicts were set up like a Deuteronomy 13 style inquiry and were presided over by who? The high priest, who was to function as an impartial judge, turning men from sin. 
In each of our prior instances, the leadership was motivated by hatred and the desire to preserve their own interests rather than Adonai's interests. However, these events only served to further Adonai's will. Yeah. The kingdom of God only advanced as men were spread out into the nations of the world. Furthermore, the recorded testimony of the apostles and Stephen during these conflicts has served countless generations of men in similar circumstances. Come on. In particular, Stephen's dying words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, served as an example of how an imperfect man can perfectly reflect Christ in his hour of trial. Paul, many years after these events, and likely still unshaven as a Nazarite, will now appear before the same governing body as a witness to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that is found in Jesus. Somebody say, in Jesus. In Jesus. You're going to want to remember that. Now that we've reminded you of Paul's priestly status and the previous events that have taken place between the followers of the way and the Sanhedrin, it is an appropriate time to tell you what is different about tonight's event. Oh, yeah. To start with, Paul's apologia before the Sanhedrin is not taking place within the normal Sanhedrin meeting hall, as is commonly thought by the casual reader. So let's take our first slide and examine the central location all of these events are surrounding. See, it's entitled Envisioning the Setting. Acts 21.30. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Then in Acts 22, verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Then 22:30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. The events of Acts 21 left Paul drug outside the temple gates and nearly beaten to death before the commander realized what was going on, and he then rushed down to put an end to the commotion. Then subsequently to being rescued, Paul, ever the glutton for punishment, asked to speak to the crowd in Acts 22, from the steps of the barracks, and then is brought inside due to the violent response of the crowd. Think there is only one building that a Roman force of this type would occupy in this area and be able to respond in time to save Paul's life. That being the Antonia Fortress, which overlooks all the activity in the Temple Mount vicinity. So our next few slides are going to help you understand the position and purpose of the Antonia Fortress. Let's take our next slide. The latter describes the structure in meticulous detail, providing information that it was located where the north and west angles of the temple conjoined built upon a rock 50 cubits high, and from there, rising an additional 40 cubits. There, in a commanding position, a great turret of 70 cubits overlooked the temple wow. and its courtyards. Inside, the fortress was furnished as lavishly as a palace with baths, courtyards, and quarters for a large number of troops. Clearly, the fortress was strategically located to accomplish Herod's purpose of dominating the temple.
through a garrison which could readily allay any disturbance that might arise in the temple precincts. The tower served as an official residence for the Roman procurators, capable of accommodating at least, at least a Roman cohort, which is 500 to 600 men. The tower housed portions of the Roman army used to guard the Jews inside the temple court. Herod required that the vestments of the high priest be kept in the tower, wow. the Antonia Fortress, to maintain control over the worship festivals of the Jews. So the fortress that we're talking about was a multi-purpose structure that could serve as a place of royal residence, an imposing defense against an attacking army, but chief among all things, it was built to maintain control over the Temple Mount and its leadership. The commander stationed at the Antonia would have been directly responsible for keeping careful watch over the area and keeping any riots or rebellions from breaking out, because that happened often. This is why the commander requires the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble in Acts 22:30. It is his job to keep things quiet and protect Roman interests, including Roman citizens who may be visiting the temple. Now, that was a lot of words, and we're really just getting into it. But this next slide is going to help you with a visual of what we're talking about. You'll recognize the Temple Mountain, this temple structure here. Our arrow on the left is where the Sanhedrin would, uh, uh, was strategically and classically meet. On the right side, we have the Antonia, or the Antonia Fortress. <coughs> this Antonia Fortress was in an elevated position, as you can see on the slide. It's outside the court of the Gentiles that was able to keep watch over the entire temple complex area. The tower served as lookout points, and soldiers were ready within, should the need arise for them to rush out and quell a mob. Additionally, the other levels could serve as quarters for high-ranking officials and a secure place to keep a prisoner, say, like Paul. Yeah. You'll remember that the temple complex had, complex had multiple concentric layers with access limited to only specific persons. The court of the Gentiles was open to everyone. Then came areas only a Jewish woman or man could enter. And finally, areas where only the priesthood had access. The Sanhedrin meeting hall was in an area only available to Jews and was an enclosed structure so as to provide complete privacy from the eyes of the Gentiles meaning that no Gentile could enter that building to see what happened within its halls during a meeting. So why are we showing this to you guys now? Why? Well, do you remember the accusation made against Paul regarding Trophimus? Yes. Yep. The accusation was that he had brought Trophimus across the barrier posted to keep Gentiles out. So let's take our next slide. It's titled, Paul, Trophimus, and the Death Penalty. This is from Craig Keener on verse 21, 28. It says, Although scripture welcomed Gentiles to the temple, a later understanding of purity led to their separation from the court of Israel, exclusively for Jewish men, and even the court of women, which excluded Gentiles. The barrier between the outer court, open to the Gentiles, and the court of women was about four feet high. And that one makes the Asian joke. With warning signs posted at intervals in Greek and Latin. 
This is what the sign said. Any foreigner who passes this point will be responsible for their own death. Man, that's inviting. In highlighted version, this was one offense for which Jewish authorities could execute capital punishment, even on Roman citizens without consulting with Rome. So the reason that we are showing you this is that the meeting in Acts 23 will take place with the Sanhedrin members, but will not take place within the Sanhedrin's normal meeting hall. No Gentile, not even a Roman, could enter that area without facing the death penalty. So let's read Acts 22.30 again. Acts 22.30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. This meeting is occurring because the Roman commander ordered it to happen so that it could find out why Paul, a Roman citizen, is being accused and why his area of purview, the temple complex, is being thrown into turmoil. In the coming verses of our text, you will see that the commander is watching the whole thing, and when it gets too far out of hand, he orders soldiers to rescue Paul. This means that the meeting must be taking place within an area readily accessible to the Roman commander and his soldiers, like a bottom floor of the Antonia, or confines of the Sanhedrin's normal hall. We're or, gonna a or a location immediately outside of the Antonia, and it cannot be taking place within the confines of the Sanhedrin's normal hall. Right, and not within the normal confines of the Sanhedrin's normal hall that you saw on the left of our map that Nick showed you. We will elaborate on this more and more as we go, but for now we'll take note that the setting is not in the usual location and the meeting was not pre-planned, but instead, without prior notice, demanded by the commander who is responsible for keeping the temple complex and its leadership in order. You guys getting the idea of this meeting wasn't the Sanhedrin's idea? Yeah. We're going to take our next preliminary element, and as we do, continue to picture the setting with us. Paul is bruised. Yeah. He's still unshaven. Mm-hmm. And he stands as a holy representation of Adonai's oh. heavenly priesthood. He's about to appear before the same authority structure that condemned Jesus, that opposed the apostles, and condemned Stephen. The meeting place is not in the usual decorum and is at the behest of a Roman commander who has commanded the council to assemble. The commander is likely, at best, agitated at the commotion that has been caused, if not outright furious. The members of the council may not be dressed in their usual formal attire due to the urgent nature of the assembly and the place of meeting. Additionally, many of the members of the council would have been agitated as well, because whatever they had previously planned to occupy their time with has now been suddenly interrupted. The last element that we want you to pick up before we jump into the text is that there has been a change of priesthood, and it is not for the better. So let's take a look at our next slide. We have a different high priest, Ananias. He was made high priest by Herod, king of Chalcis, who for this purpose removed Joseph, the son of Camidus. Being implicated in the quarrels of the Jews and the Samaritans, 
he with others was sent to Rome to answer for his conduct before Claudius Caesar. The emperor decided in favor of the accused party, and Ananias returned with credit and remained in office until Agrippa gave it to Ishmael. Paul was ignorant of this man being the high priest. He really was not, for he had been deprived of this office by the Romans and succeeded by Jonathan, after whose murder by Festus there occurred a period of vacancy in this office. During this vacancy, Ananias usurped the office from which he had been expelled for his crimes. Paul no doubt thought that the person presiding was the Sagan, or high priest deputy, or some other person put in the seat for the moment. So the man as high priest in our text tonight, who sits in the office of high priest, is known primarily for a lack of morality and for possessing great skill in matters of political intrigue. There have been several changes in the priesthood since our early chapters in Acts that are not within our purview to cover tonight, but you should know that many of these changes have been taking place while Paul has been away for years on missionary journeys. Due to the importance of the high priest in Jewish social and political concerns, Paul would have eventually become aware of some of the changes as word passed from person to person. There was no drudge report. There was no text messaging back then. However, in the case of Ananias, it was thought that due to his crimes, he would never be high priest again. He was, however, able, however, able to weasel his way into Rome's favor and suddenly seize an opportunity to reclaim the office during a power vacuum. We're going to put the setting together again for you. But first, let's take a couple of slides that give you an idea of what this new priest Ananias character consisted of. The character of Ananias. Ananias was high priest, AD 47 through 52, and then again from about 53 to 59. Thus, Paul here meets Ananias shortly before Agrippa II would remove him. Ananias was a Roman vassal. Look at this next part. Known for his greed and for stealing the tithes belonging to the poorer priests. <coughs> Seems like a good guy. The zealot revolutionaries killed him in AD 66, about eight years after this hearing. Our point in sharing this with you is not to affirm the exact dating, but rather to give you an idea of what Ananias' tenure as high priest looked like and how exactly his life ended. <laughs> his abuse of power went so far as to oppress and impoverish even his fellow descendants of Aaron. Man, that's bad. Our next slide is from Acts 5 session, and it is a reminder as to how the general populace viewed the aristocratic party of the Sadducees. Yeah, not very well. The name Sadducees comes from the Hebrew word by which they were called is Sadukim or Sadukim. Yeah. The ordinary Jewish statement is that the Sadducees were named from a certain Seda, a disciple of Antigonus of Soko, who is mentioned in the Mishnah as having received the oral law from Simon the Just. Epiphanius states that the Sadducees called themselves such from the Hebrew Zedek, that is righteousness, and that there was anciently a Zadok among the priests 
but they did not continue in the doctrines of their chief. Uh-oh. Ederson suggests that the linguistic difficulty in the change of the sound I into you in Zadikim into Zadukim may have resulted not dramatically, but by popular witticism. Some wit may have suggested, read not Zadikim, that is, the righteous, but read Zadukim, that is, desolation or destruction. Whether or not this suggestion approves itself to critics, the derivation of Sadducees from Zadikim is certainly that which offers most probability. However, the aristocratic, aristocratic priests were viewed by the general populace as men who were supposed to be righteous, but were in fact desolation. Ananias is arguably among the worst of them. The Talmud even goes so far so as to write a parody of Psalm 24, which is of course about the superior king or the king of glory, in which Ananias is pictured as stealing even from Adonai himself. Let's take a look at that. The Psalm 24-7 parody. Josephus says that he confiscated for itself the tithes given to the ordinary priest and gave lavish bribes to Roman and Jewish officials. In a parody on Psalm 24-7, the Talmud lampoons yeah. Ananias wondering in grief. Wow. The temple court cried out, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and let Yohanan, a derogatory nickname, the son of Narvi, a modified form of his father's name, meaning generous one, used sarcastically, and disciple of Pinkai, a play on the verb panak, meaning to pamper, enter and fill his stomach with the divine sacrifices. Ananias was a brutal and scheming man who was hated by Jewish nationalists for his pro-Roman policies. Wow, it's pretty bad. So in a sentence, this wordplay for Ananias would be, the temple cried out, lift up your heads, O you gates, and let Yohanan, the generous one, the pampered one, come in so he can steal even Adonai's sacrifices from him. Wow. To say the least, the high priest was corrupt and was hated by nearly everyone. Our last slide will remind you of one of the major doctrinal differences between the Sadducean and Pharisaic strains of thought. Sadducee denials. You remember this slide? Luke 20, verse 27 says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, just so happens to be in our text tonight, Acts 23, verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So a rift existed between the Sadducean and Pharisaic groups regarding the resurrection of the dead and the ongoing ability for men to receive divine direction or divine revelation by the medium of an angel or other supernatural event. In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, we noted the proclamation of the apostles was that the hope of the resurrection was found in Jesus. This declaration that the hope of the resurrection was found only in Jesus proved to be a problem for both the party of the Sadducees and Pharisees. This will be pertinent to Paul's testimony before the Sanhedrin tonight. So now we're going to recap our setting, pray, and read the text. Remember, 
Paul is still bruised, unshaven. He's wolfed out, wolfed out, man, like a wookie, and stands as a holy representation of Adonai's heavenly priesthood. He's about to appear before the same authority structure that condemned Jesus, that opposed the apostles, and condemned Stephen all upon the pretense of rightly applying a Deuteronomy 13 style inquiry. Doesn't sound very promising for Paul. No. The meeting place is not in the usual decorum and is at the behest of a Roman commander who has ordered that the council assemble. The commander is likely at best agitated at the commotion that has been caused, if not outright furious. Many of the members of the council would have also been agitated because whatever they had previously planned to occupy the time with has now been suddenly interrupted, like a late night call out. The members of the council are not likely to be dressed in their uniforms, their usual formal attire, due to the urgent nature of the assembly and the place of meeting. To make matters worse, there's been an unexpected change of high priest, and it was not for the better. The man who now sits in the office is an immoral opportunist who suddenly seized that position. This poses a substantially confusing and highly hostile scenario, all of which is firmly within the sovereign leading of Adonai. A witness from Paul as a member of the heavenly priesthood will be completed before the leaders of the Sanhedrin, including its corrupt high priest. So why don't we get uh, Brother Ubizi to stand up and pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our text. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you for everything you've done in this place, mighty God. We thank you for the leaders that you've gifted us with, Lord. We thank you for your presence, oh Lord. We thank you that it's here right now. We get to learn about your word, Lord. Learn about Paul, Lord. We get to learn about what you're doing, mighty God. We pray that this would impact us on a level, Lord. We would take it to work, Lord, that we would, that we would give it to our family, to our brothers, mighty God. Oh, Lord, empower us with the boldness that Paul had, oh Lord. Yes, Lord. chapter tonight for us. Beginning in Acts 22, verse 30. Yes, sir. The next day, since yeah. the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered that those ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Mm. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Whoa. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? 
the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid, Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Prove, uh, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as, far, as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left let the cavalry go on with them while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to them. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Man, we've loved studying the book of Acts and teaching the book of Acts together with you. This chapter is so unique and it's special in many different ways. We hope during our intro you were able to understand the setting of our chapter a little bit better. We're going to get into that as we go, but keep our intro in mind as we reread chapter 22, verse 30, Linton. The next day... Since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought, he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Oh, he ordered the Sanhedrin to assemble. The reasons that we have gone to the lengths we have to help you picture the setting, they're going to become apparent in the next few verses of our text. For now, though, we're going to show you two slides to help you discern the imagery of the meeting that has just been assembled. Here's our first one. (laughs) 
That's right. You guys remember this slide? That's a big no to where the Sanhedrin traditionally would have met. Wrong. A typical meeting that was arranged by the choice of the Sanhedrin would have taken place in this private hall, where the 70 members, the priest, and the accused would have clearly designated seating, making it easy to discern who is who, even if one did not personally know the members of the council. This is not dissimilar to today's courtroom setting, where you have the judge, the jury, and the accused, and they're clearly obvious due to their arrangement in the room, even if you have no idea who the participants are personally. Come on, Keith. However, this meeting was not arranged by the choice of the Sanhedrin. Nope. It was instead required by the Roman commander, who wants to find out exactly what the charges are against Paul. Yeah, and because no Gentile, including a Roman commander, could enter the Sanhedrin meeting hall, yep. the meeting had to take place at a location outside of the normal hall and within the commander's purview. This was most likely in a bottom floor of the Antonia, but could, could have also been in a common area just outside of the Antonia. This next slide, that's where the Antonia would have been located and where the meeting would have taken place. The setting on the, of the common interaction will not afford Paul the normal clarity of the arrangements that would be present in the Sanhedrin's meeting hall. Instead, he has been brought down by the Roman commander into another meeting place where the council members have been gathered to bring their accusations against Paul within the hearing of the Roman commander. Additionally, the members of the council are not likely to be dressed in their usual formal attire due to the urgent nature of the assembly and the place of meeting. For Paul, these factors compound to create an intimidating and confusing setting to be brought into. Paul will, however, begin to boldly address the room in his typical familial terms for his brother Israelites. Come on. Chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Paul begins his public testimony or apologia just as he did before the multitude in Acts 22 <laughs> who were trying to kill him. Let's look at Acts 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. <laughs> the use of familial terms, brothers and fathers, in Acts 22 is clearly not an indication of personal acquaintance with everyone in the mob who had attempted to lynch Paul, <laughs> but is rather an indication of his continued view of the people of Israel as his beloved family, yeah, yeah. despite how he is currently being treated by them. Better mind, the book of Romans is believed to be authored at some point between the events in Ephesus and Paul's arrival in Jerusalem back in Acts 21. So let's read a brief excerpt that is a representative of many examples where Paul's hope for his people Israel is stated. This is Romans 11, 13 through 15. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous yeah. and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Yeah. Paul entered Jerusalem bound by the Spirit of God, knowing that physical bonds awaited him, 
He also entered Jerusalem with the hope of seeing as many of his brother Israelites saved as possible. Yeah. This has not changed now that he stands before the council members of the Sanhedrin. Come on. He addresses them as his brothers because they are his brother Israelites, and he hopes to win some of them. Come on. The second part of Paul's opening testimony is, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Well, this is in direct contradiction to the rumors that had circulated about Paul prior to his arrival and the accusations that were made about him by the Jews from Asia. Yeah. Look, we're going to begin by reviewing the elders and James' statements at Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. You guys want to look at that? Yeah. 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 This next slide is entitled, False Rumors. In Acts 21.20, we read... And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Come on. James and the elders wisely advised Paul to not only pay the sacrifices required to fulfill his Nazarite vow, but also pay for the other four men. This was arranged to clearly display to those in Jerusalem that Paul did, in fact, live in obedience to the law and thereby dispel the rumors of his advocation for Jews in the diaspora to live in any other way. Paul was not only obedient to the mandatory aspects of the law for all Jews, but was also under a voluntary vow of the highest form of devotion that in many ways was the realization of a priestly life. Yeah. Paul was not only obedient, but had intentionally gone above and beyond what was required out of devotion to Adonai Amen. and out of a desire to be a testimony to his people Israel. You will remember that some Jews from Asia stirred up trouble just before Paul had completed the final days of purification that preceded the shaving and end of his Nazarite vow. I mean, he was almost there, man. Yeah. In all likelihood, this would mean that Paul is standing before the council wolfed out, yeah. still bearing the hair of a Nazarite, when he says, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience wow. to this day. Wow. Yeah. This fact makes the reaction of the high priest in our coming verses all the more shocking. Yep. Yeah. We know you want to get into that, but before we get to that, let's look at the specific accusations that Paul, that brought Paul into this series of events. These are the three initial accusations. First one, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people. However, Paul himself in Romans 9.3 says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Yeah. Second accusation. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our law. 
Yet, Paul says in Romans 7, 12, so, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Come on. Third accusation. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against his place. Yet, he says in Acts 24, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or temple. So, Paul's affirmation that he had fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience was both a direct contradiction of the accusations that led to his appearance before the council members as he was fully Torah observant and also a definitive statement that his activities as a follower of the way were in obedience to Adonai's will. In many places in scripture, Paul affirms the statement that he has conducted himself in a good or clear conscience. Second Timothy 1.3 is, however, probably the most informative as to how Paul viewed himself. Yeah, let's take a look at it. Second Timothy 1.3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Come on. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Second Timothy was written somewhere near the very end of Paul's life, and his testimony is that he served God with a clear conscience as his ancestors did. In effect, Paul's statement is that he is walking in the same way as the patriarchs, that the patriarchs did, in obedience and faith towards God, with nothing to be ashamed of. The response that this will elicit from the council is telling of their spiritual condition. At the testimony of a man's clear conscience, there will be physical retaliation. Wow. Well, it's worth considering your initial thoughts and speech toward a contradictory viewpoint from your own. Wow. When encountering a suggestion from your spouse, a brother, or a coworker, and you dislike the suggestion, is your reaction to internally, or for some, to even externally attack the person by denigrating their value because of the difference in viewpoint? The concept of innocent until proven guilty is not just a modern concept, but is one thoroughly rooted in the Tanakh, as the rules for a judge are repeatedly outlined, requiring multiple witnesses to consider anyone guilty. Now, a sober assessment of our own lives has shown our propensity to consider ourselves innocent until proven guilty, but conversely, to require others to prove their innocence particularly when we disagree with another on a point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. wow. We are the body of Messiah on earth yeah. and are in the order of the heavenly priesthood. Yeah. It is of vital importance that we judge with honest scales yeah. and not ones distorted by our own carnal presumptions. Right. Furthermore, the third irreducible minimum in our working relationships reads as follows. I have proven to my brothers, and my brothers have proven to me that we have each other's best interest in mind, and we will place our brother's needs above our own. I will sacrifice my thoughts, emotions, and opinions to implement the word's instruction for our good. Now, this is, of course, directly derived from Philippians 2, 1 through 4, and 19 through 22. And most of you Bible scholars know who wrote that. 
Now the next verse is going to clearly illustrate the presumption of guilt without genuine consideration of the truth. Verse 2. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those bending near Paul to strike him on the mouth. <laughs> Ananias is among the worst of men to sit in the office of high priest during the first century. We've already shown you how he treated his fellow descendants of Aaron during his tenure. At this point, it's appropriate to look at two passages from Deuteronomy that have, been, that have great bearing on Ananias' actions. We're going to begin with Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Corporal punishment in Yahweh's society was to be reserved only for a man who had been proven guilty and when the tribes had been determined to preserve a beat to deserve a beating rather than just restitution in the form of payment. In a case where corporal punishment was required, it was done in a very methodical format. Yeah. One that involved the offending party lying down so as to not incur accidental injury through a fall. And a limit was placed on how many blows could be dealt to that man. This preserved some dignity in the man receiving the punishment. But even more importantly than that, as the text indicates, this limit was placed so that in the eyes of the judge, the man who was receiving the punishment would not be degraded. The idea behind that is that the judge at no point in time should see the man as less than one of Adonai's sons, meaning his own fellow brother, even when the man deserved the punishment that he was receiving. The high priest has cast judgment upon Paul's crimes with no evidence and proceeded to punish him in a manner that is markedly against what the Torah prescribes. So you're wondering, how do we apply this? Let's bring it home. If you minister for any significant period of time, you will be involved in some form of church discipline or correction, and the personal ramifications of this passage must be adhered to. Hallelujah. The point in disciplining anyone is to provide an opportunity for God to work while the offending member experiences the consequences of being separated from the body. Furthermore, in our daily interactions with one another, that often involve corrections, remember that Adonai places limits on how severe it can be. This is not just for the sake of the one being corrected, but for the man who is acting as a judge, so that your brother is not degraded in your own sight. The same principle applies in domestic relations as well. Our speech toward our spouses and children about corrections that do in fact need to be made are often under the judgment of God because we went so far beyond what was required to produce change as to degrade them in our own eyes during the process of illustrating what was actually wrong. Wow. 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 
When Ananias hears Paul's statement about conducting his duty before God with a clear conscience, and then immediately renders judgment against Paul without hearing a single witness, Ananias is acting as his own witness. Deuteronomy is quite explicit in describing what a false witness deserves. Let's look at it in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So the Torah is clear that a malicious witness deserved to have the punishment he sought to bring upon his brother applied to him. The shocking part of this whole scenario is that Deuteronomy 19 presumes that if the evil of a false witness arose, the priests and judges who represent God would be available to diligently search out the matter and find the truth. But the problem here is that the priest himself is the malicious witness. We're going to continue in our text, but keep in mind that the high priest's actions merit that he is the one who now deserves to be struck in the mouth. Let's get verse 30, brother. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed law. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Paul's retort after being hit in the mouth is both scripturally accurate and indicative of the general condition that Israel's leadership is in currently. The phrase, God will strike you, and you watch whitewashed wall, is Paul stringing pearls from the law and the prophets. We're going to begin with Deuteronomy 28, 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all the undertake to do. Man, have I experienced that before. <laughs> Until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you're entering to possess, take possession of it. The Lord will strike you there it is. with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The phrase, God will strike you, is a direct quotation from verse 22. In response to being struck in the mouth, Paul is conveying that God's curse is on Ananias to destroy him from the land. Additionally, the following imagery of bronze heavens is indicating that God will not even hear Ananias' prayers. Israel's leadership is, in fact, in a place of looming judgment. Approximately a decade from this time, the temple will be destroyed, as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, verse 2. Now the phrase, whitewashed wall, 
is a quotation from Ezekiel chapters 13 and chapter 22, as well as from Jesus in Matthew 23, when he quoted Ezekiel as applying to the Pharisees. In all instances, the phrase has to do with the presence of hypocrisy and the hollowness of a hope in anything other than Adonai. For time's sake, we're only going to read Ezekiel 22, so let's start in verse 26. Her priests, her who? Priests. Her priests, that is Jerusalem's priests, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. Wow, wow remember that, because we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Remember, Paul has just been hit in the mouth. By quoting Ezekiel, Paul is plainly stating that this is not how the rulers of the people should act and that they are under the imminent judgment of God. The passage in Ezekiel goes on to describe the indignation of God being poured out as a result of priests who pervert the law, princes who devour the people, and prophets who paint whitewash over sin. Now we can't help but admit to you guys tonight. Paul's retort to being hit in the mouth, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah I mean, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. No, I, no I, it, it hits us in the feels. We're impressed with the way that he was able to string pearls like that, just like this. Guys, the depth of those pearls is something precious. Hope you guys got those. Additionally, everything that Paul said is scripturally sound. Everything. It's an accurate assessment of the condition of Israel's leadership at the time when Paul says it. With that said, though, the evidence of Paul's own words in the coming verses overwhelmingly point to the fact that Paul himself did not believe that Adonai had directed him to make those statements at the time. Not directed by the Lord. Paul was instead responding truthfully, but motivated by the provocation of being hit rather than the divine direction of Adonai working through it. The fact of the matter is that not everything that is true is necessarily Adonai's will for you to say in any given moment. This is a concept that younger men tend to struggle with, but older men who have been pastoring for a time understand readily. Ask any of our elders. Sit down with them. They'll explain it to you. Let's continue to our next verse. We're going to pick up with another detail in our setting. Verse 4. Those who are standing near Paul said, You dare insult God's high priest? Let's look at our next slide. Let's think about the placement of the high priest in this verse. So Acts 23 verse 2 says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike, to strike him in the mouth. 
Then in verse 4, states, those who stood by said, would you revile God's, God's high priest? The arrangement in this impromptu meeting has the priest standing somewhere away from Paul, commanding those near Paul to strike him. Then again in verse 4, we see that it is those near Paul who are the ones speaking to him. It is impossible to know how things were arranged in this meeting, or if there was any arrangement at all. But it is evident that there is a proximity barrier between Paul and the high priest the whole time. Paul is interacting with the men who were around him while the priest is at a distance. So let's put the setting together one last time. Paul is still bruised, unshaven, and stands at the holy representation of Adonai's heavenly priesthood. He is standing before the same authority structure that condemned Jesus, opposed the apostles, and condemned Stephen, all upon the pretense of rightly applying a Deuteronomy 13-style inquiry. Paul had previous associations with this authority structure and has hopes that at least some of them will listen to his testimony and find salvation. The meeting place is not an unusual decorum and has been arranged at the behest of an agitated Roman commander who has ordered that the council assemble. The change of venue eliminates the normal advantage that designated seating would afford a person in identifying those who are speaking. Additionally, many members of the council are agitated because whatever they had previously planned to occupy their time with has now been suddenly interrupted. As a result of the urgency of the meeting and the change of venue, the members of the council are not likely to be dressed in their usual formal attire that would help a person identify their role in the meeting. The man who now sits in the office of high priest is an immoral opportunist who had suddenly seized the position when it was believed that because of his crimes, he could not regain the position. During the meeting, the priest is not standing near Paul, but instead commanding others who are standing near Paul. Paul's statement was in response to having been just struck in the mouth. All of this poses a substantially confusing and highly hostile scenario. Could you imagine if you were drugged from the bottom of a prison to meet with a group of people and you don't know where the arrangement is? Very confusing and highly hostile. And all of this, all of which, is firmly within the sovereign leading of Adonai. So that Paul can testify about the hope of the gospel. Let's take our next verse. Paul replied, Brother, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now over the years, our own preaching and teaching has presented this verse as sarcasm on the part of Paul. While this is still a possible understanding, as a team, we have come to a different position than our historical one through extensive research, extensive prayer, as well as extensive discussion. Namely, that Paul's testimony should be taken at face value, and that he really did not know he was speaking to the high priest, for all the reasons mentioned earlier about the setting that we have become aware of. Now, upon recognizing that he was speaking to the man who now sat in the office of high priest, Exodus 22.28 came to his mind, which says, You shall not revile God. 
nor curse a ruler of your people. Paul then did not carry on with his retort, but instead backed off of it so that he could testify to the actual reason that he was standing before the Sanhedrin. That being the hope of the resurrection of the dead, which is only found in Jesus the Messiah. All right, engage with us. One of the main reasons it took as much work for us to come to this conclusion as it did is that throughout the Tanakh, men actually address leaders of all types, including priests, directly about their sin and the judgment of God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is not wrong, but morally upright when directed by God. The issue at hand is that Paul, while an amazing man of God, is still sinfully fallible and was off mission because of a personal distaste, distaste for what was done to him. Wow. We are going to skip ahead in the chapter to show you Jesus' own commentary as to why Paul was in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. Isn't that a good question? Yeah. Why was Paul in Jerusalem anyway? Acts 23 verse 11 states, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Mm. Paul was bound by the Spirit to be in Jerusalem and ultimately before the Sanhedrin so that he could testify to the facts about Jesus. Paul was not in Jerusalem to testify to the facts about Ananias' guilt, nor was he in Jerusalem to speak about the facts of how sinful it was to strike him on the mouth. When Paul recognized that he was speaking to the high priest and that he was off track with Adonai's will, he immediately got back on track with the purpose for which he was brought to Jerusalem. That being to testify to the resurrection of the dead in Jesus. This example is informative for us in our own personal times of trial and testimony. We are going to cover a few passages that will help us understand our own responsibility to represent Adonai's will, even in our choice of what true statements we actually make. Beginning, Beginning with the example of Jesus before the high priest of his time on earth. John 18, picking up in verse 19. Let's go. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things... One of the officers, standing by, struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is, of course, infallible, and only speaks what the Father would have him say. Upon being struck in the face, in nearly the same scenario as Paul... Jesus refrains from enumerating the ways that Annas would be cursed by God. The Son of God was struck under his watch. Just think (laughs) about that. That's pretty bad. Although speaking of his impending judgment would have been truthful and scriptural. This is because Jesus would only speak 
what the Father would have them speak Amen. in that moment and at that time. The central issue at hand in John 18 is that Jesus has displayed a perfect witness and he stays on that focus and refuses to deviate despite the provocation of being struck. That's good. That's good this just so happens to also be the purpose of Paul's witness before the Sanhedrin to testify about the facts concerning Jesus. Our point in contrasting Paul and Jesus' example before the priest is that we are imperfect men called to imitate a perfect God. Paul was not perfect and was temporarily steered off course, and understandably so. But he immediately changes his direction when he realizes that he is, in fact, off course. This is an example for us as all as we attempt to emulate the image of a perfect God while being imperfect ourselves. That's a good word. Now we're going to take a few examples from the writings that were written by the wisest man on earth. So we're going to do these quickly because we have a lot of content to cover. Proverbs 25, 15 says, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Ananias was not likely to be persuaded because he was committed to wickedness on an exceptional level. This, however, does not change the truth of the statement. A soft tongue will break a bone. There are times appointed by Adonai for bold confrontation, which is something that Paul excelled at. There are also times where the most effective thing you can do to a man's own soul yeah. in the effort to bring conviction that yields salvation oh. is to speak softly. Ultimately, the appropriate approach is to be genuinely led by your father and not the provocation of another's action. Come on, yeah. Proverbs 12.18 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. Regardless of the provocations that you are facing, speaking with a reckless tongue is unhelpful, even when what you are saying is based on Scripture. The Word of God is a living and active sword that pierces hearts. The appropriate use of the word is something that requires mastery, though. That mastery only stems from relation to the Father's instruction. Ecclesiastes 12.11. The words of the wise are like goats. Their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. One shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. The scripture itself is our very life. Jesus is the word of God tabernacled into flesh. The example that we see in his work is filled with highly confrontational encounters. And also the refusal to speak anything that is in addition to what he has received from his father. That's good. In the encounter with Herod, Jesus refused to say one word, even one word, because his father had not directed him to do so. The point is not to encourage you to just be quiet and shut up, but to instead speak all that you are directed to by God to speak, and nothing in addition to that. The truth is never more important than when you are on a trial of sorts, as in being attacked for your convictions and your walk with Messiah. Come on! Let's not hear not the words of the wisest men on earth, but of the men that came from heaven. Luke 21, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors all 
on account of my name. This will result in you being witnesses to them. Come on. But make up your mind not to worry before, beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Yeah. Hey, it personally pains us to point out that Paul did not handle something correctly. Yep. For however brief of a moment it was. Come on. None of us like doing it. No. This is because we admire Paul and want to be like him. Yeah. The truth of the matter is that what men of God get wrong and then correct is actually more insightful for us Amen. than the times that they got it right from the beginning. True. Isn't this why we all love the Apostle Peter? Yeah. Yeah. His constant failings and course corrections show us all how to emulate Christ in a way that we could not if Peter was presented in Scripture as perfect at all times. So it is with this instance in Paul's life, we must make up our minds not to worry about what we will say in our defense, but only what words are given to us by the Spirit of Yeshua himself. So he showed you seven similarities between Paul and Jesus during our session on Acts 21. What you have seen tonight is an area in which Paul was still being perfected, just like us. So I have to ask you a question. If you have fully died with Christ, what need remains to defend yourself? No. If you only speak what the Father says, what need have you to explain how you are wrong? No. Again, we are all benefited by Paul's temporary mission drift and then subsequent course correction because we all experience the same thing. May we handle it as quickly and boldly as he did, moving immediately to the point and purpose of Adonai. The whole scenario between Paul and Ananias is like an echo from the story of David and Nabal. Nabal and Ananias are both wicked fools. David and Paul are both righteous men worth following. Both David and Paul were carried away by a personal provocation. Both David and Paul were right in their pronounced judgment. Nabal and Ananias were both destined to perish in the sovereignty of Adonai. Both David and Paul drew the conclusion that it was through their own actions that condemnation was to be wrought when it was in fact in the hands of God. Remarkable men like David and Paul are an example to us all in that we are able to see their proper judgments and wrong applications. They both, however, were easily correctable because they were true sons of God. And in the end, God vindicated them both. Remember, Ananias will die only a handful of years after this interaction with Paul. In some accounts, in a sewer. Let's get verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. This amazing verse is often misunderstood and overlooked on multiple levels by the average reader and commentator. For this reason, we are going to take the verse in at least two parts, starting with the declaration that I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. This is not just a mere tactic. The hope of the resurrection of the dead, as found in Jesus, is the hope of the gospel. Our first slide. Acts 4.2, you'll remember, because they were teaching the people 
and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts 23, verse 6. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And then in verse 11, the words of the Lord himself. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What Paul is declaring is the same hope that the apostles declared from the beginning as evidenced in Acts chapter 4. Namely, that the promised resurrection of the dead, which is associated with the restoration of Israel and subsequently all things after a millennial reign, is found in Jesus. In Acts 23.6, you can see that Paul spoke of the resurrection. In Acts 23.11, you can see that the Lord said Paul had testified to the facts about me, meaning they're one and the same. This is because the resurrection of the dead is found in Jesus. Amen. We have a limited amount of time left to finish the chapter, so if you're struggling to grasp the concept of the resurrection being found in Jesus... We suggest that you review the teaching on Acts chapter 4. For now, we will just read Revelation 1 and then move on to Paul's aim of salvation in the council room. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, Come on. and the, rule, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to be his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the first of many to be born from the dead. His work has paved the way for all of his people to not only be forgiven, that's the first step, that's the very beginning, but to be raised into a new physical life and become the eternal priesthood of God through the resurrection power. Now let's move on to Paul's aim in addressing the room. Every man in this council knows that Paul is a follower of the way. Paul's declaration is that his hope in the resurrection is what has brought him to this trial. In other words, he has followed Jesus as the Messiah, the Netzer, the Righteous One, the one who will bring about the resurrection of the dead. Remember that, as exhibited in Romans 11, Paul entered into Jerusalem hoping to save as many of his fellow Jews as he possibly could. Paul even connected their acceptance of Messiah to the time frame when the dead would be raised. Let's read that again in Romans eleven thirteen. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It was all about saving some of them, if not all of them. It is true that Paul was well aware of the rift that was existing between the Sadducean group and the Pharisaic group, because Paul himself was a Pharisee, throughout his entire lifetime. Paul is not simply trying to cause division between the two groups. He's attempting to see some of his brothers saved by testifying to their shared hope in the resurrection. Come on. This testimony is founded on the fact that they all know he's a follower follower of the way and holds Jesus as the Messiah. 
Remember the record, or you may remember the record of Acts, shows us no example of a named member of the Sadducean party ever coming to faith. That's true. That is not the case, however, with the party of the Pharisees. Amen. Acts 15.5 displays an entire group of believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, participating in a discussion on how to relate to new Gentile converts. Attempts to underemphasize Paul's statement in which he said, I am a Pharisee, are gross and sinful forms of eisegesis, meaning that to take something, Paul's statement, as anything but, but literal, is forcing an idea onto the text that, uh, that would have never been on the mind right. of the original audience. Some would say that's not all. That's not all! So we're going to examine the statement in the 1984 NIV that says, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Before we do, you should know that we like to take any opportunity to advocate for the 1984 NIV yes, that we we're able to do. We definitely do. This is unfortunately not a time that the 1984's translation is defensible in any way. The text does not say that Paul was the son of a Pharisee, but was instead the son of Pharisees. Let's take our next slide. The son of Pharisees. Acts 23.6 in the NASB. Brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. ESV, a son of Pharisees. Ned, a son of Pharisees. The Amplified, a son of Pharisees. Even the New Living Translation. Oh my goodness. Come on, Elder Charlie. As were my ancestors. Plurals. And even the message. Should have been all along. Well, amen. 
So what you should be drawing from this, what you should be drawing from this is that Paul recognizes a significant portion of the room has the potential for saving faith in Messiah. That being the Pharisees, to whom Paul personally belongs in the moment he says, I am a Pharisee, and his family lineage belongs to the Pharisees. This is because the Pharisees have hope in the resurrection. Paul hasn't split the room. The room was already split between those who had a real hope and those who did not. Paul addressed those who had a real hope and could find it realized through becoming followers of the way as a substantial number of Pharisees already had, like Paul. In the coming verses, you will see that while the Pharisees in the room may not have have accepted Messiah, they do defend Paul on the grounds that he really may have had a supernatural experience that should be considered. This display is in sharp contrast with the party of the Sadducees that the aristocratic priests belong to, including Ananias, the high priest. Skip verse 7. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and their assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are no neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? So Luke makes it a point to tell you that some of the Pharisees publicly declared that they find nothing wrong with Paul. This is not necessarily an indication of acceptance of Messiah, but it certainly is an indication that they did not believe that Paul's testimony should be out and out discredited. This whole display is not dissimilar to the events of Acts 5 where a Pharisee named Gamaliel stood up in defense of the apostles and commanded the council to reconsider their designs to kill the apostles. It is not within our purview to do tonight, but we suggest that you compare the text of Acts 5 and the verses that we just read. The similarities that you will find are quite surprising. Additionally, you will see that in the coming chapters, it is the high priest who is shown to be driving the continued accusations against Paul before the Roman officials. Never at any point in the coming trials will a Pharisee be named as pressing the prosecution against Paul. The dispute that is now ongoing between the Pharisees and the Sadducees will cause the Roman commander who is overseeing these events to bring the meeting to an end rather swiftly. This testimony before the Sanhedrin Council constitutes the fifth recorded apologia or defense in the book of Acts so far. Amen. This slide is titled Five Formal Defenses of the Faith So Far. The first one in Acts 4, Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 5, the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 6, Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 22, Paul stood on the steps of the Antonia Fortress before the crowd of people. And in Acts 23, Paul stood before the council members of the Sanhedrin. And we have a six and a seven yet to come in our chapters. Our coming weeks will complete a perfect display of the gospel through imperfect men while they are under trial. 
We have told you from the beginning that the book of Acts would be constitute a call to what? Action! Action. For every one of us. Seeing how men like Paul made mistakes and got back on mission are invaluable insights that should mark our daily lives. Amen. We are all aspiring to emulate the example of Christ in every way, and the reality is that we are not perfected yet. Yeah. But the way we will succeed is by immediate repentance unto right action. That is, getting back on the mission of Adonai's will. That's Come on. Really good. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn, up, torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So we told you from the beginning that this meeting could not be taking place within the Sanhedrin's normal hall, and this verse confirms that point in an uncontrivable way. The Roman commander has been watching the proceedings the whole time and orders his soldiers in to remove Paul from the tumultuous situation. Remember, it was the commander's job to look out for the interest of Rome on the Temple Mount. That includes watching out for Roman citizens. In verse 11, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This verse is the fourth time that Paul has had a visual encounter Ooh, with Jesus come on, in come some on. form or another as recorded in the book of Acts. That's amazing. We have a slide for you. Of course, Acts 9, Paul's initial encounter. Acts 22 records Paul having a vision at the temple. Yeah. Acts 18, Paul had a vision in Corinth. Acts 23, the Lord steered near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Much of Paul's life has been marked by a strange mixture of constancy and uncertainty. Yeah. This mixture is otherwise known as faith. In Acts 9, Paul had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life forever. During this event, many things were revealed to Paul about his ultimate destiny, including that he would be a witness to his people Israel and before kings. The steps between Paul's initial encounter and reaching his ultimate destiny were a mystery that required him to walk by faith. Amen. Frankly, we can relate to this process in our own lives. Yeah. Yeah. The most reassuring aspect of Paul's journey is that at just the right time, Adonai gives him waypoints that help him discern not only his next steps, Hallelujah. but the attitude in which he is to approach those yes. steps. The encounter in the temple helped to allay Paul con Paul's concerns over leaving Jerusalem to go to the Gentiles. The encounter in Corinth strengthened his resolve to go on speaking in spite of rising opposition. This event in chapter 23 is both affirmation that Paul had succeeded in his witness in Jerusalem, despite the whole event after being hit in the mouth, and would now assuredly be brought all the way to Rome to stand before the emperor. There are a few main lessons that we should take from this. Lesson number one. Faith is acting on what you have been given while trusting Adonai to steer you. Come on. Lesson Come on. number two. Further instructions will always be given after you have completed the last thing you were instructed to do, but should not be expected before you have been obedient. Praise God. Our third lesson. When things look like they are dismal, fan into flame Come the on. courage of your heart. In obedience to the words of Jesus, take Courage. That's good. After all, Jesus promised in Matthew 28, 20 that surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Yeah. 
Look, we could speak about this subject for hours more, but we need to keep moving. So instead, we're just going to read to you from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This was written near the very end of Paul's life and is regarded regarding one of his trials in Rome. The phrasing, the Lord stood by my side, is remarkable. When you consider that here in Acts 23, the Lord is standing near Paul and speaking to to him about his ultimate destination in Rome. Come on, that's good. It would seem that Paul would continue to draw from this one event for many years into the future. The language of Stephen in Acts 7 also indicates that he saw the Lord standing as he approached his final hour and final testimony. Paul was likely meditating on the way Stephen was brought into the heavenly kingdom through his time of testing when he himself wrote 2 Timothy at the end of his life. We have a lot of of text ahead of us, so let's keep moving. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They bound themselves. If we had time, and we don't, we clearly don't, we would trace out the parallels and contrasts between Paul being bound by the Spirit of God under a vow of actual devotion to God with the spirit that these men are operating in and have put themselves under a note in. Furthermore, if we had time, and we don't, we would make practical application regarding the need for each of us to inspect our own hearts with the light of God's Word in the effort to remove the compulsion of the flesh and be truly bound to the Spirit of God. As we have said, we don't have time. So let's move to verse 13. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Small notes like this are not a coincidence and are enigmatic of larger themes in the Tanakh. Let's look at that. (laughs) 40 is a time of testing. Look at that first one. Genesis 7-4. It rained on the earth for how many days? Forty days. It's going to be a theme in this slide. You'll catch it. <laughs> Number two, Acts 7.30. Moses was in the desert 40, 40 years. years before delivering Israel. Whoa. How about Numbers 13.25? The 12 spies spent 40, 40 days in the promised land. Numbers 14.33. Israel spent 40, 40 years in the desert. First Kings 19.8. Elijah traveled 40 40 days days on one meal. Ezekiel 4, 6. Ezekiel laid on his side for 40 40 days. Luke 4, 1 through 2. Jesus was tempted in the desert 40 40 days. days. So Noah, a righteous man, was delivered through his 40 days of testing. Moses arose from his 40 years of testing as a man fit to be used by God. That'll preach. The 40 days in the land and the 40 years in the desert only strengthen the resolve of Joshua and Caleb. Elijah, Ezekiel, and of course Jesus came out of their times of testing with a lasting testimony that instructs us all. These 40 men 
will in Adonai's sovereignty only serve to further his purposes in Paul's life. They actually become the catalyst that pushes Paul toward the path to Rome. Let's go to verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to go before he gets here. So on a historical level, there are several militant groups that these men might be identified as. But all identifications require you to make some assumptions. So we're not going to do it. What is clear is that there is an unholy relationship between these 40 men and the chief priest. The men made the oath before speaking to the priest about the subject of killing Paul. And then proceed to tell the priest what to do. Wow. This whole scenario is not only wickedly motivated, but is backwards in the no, proceedings right. that you would expect. Right. Despite these factors, the chief priests are happy to have an answer in their quest to get rid of Paul. Yep. Now on a non-historical, but instead personal level. The practice of committing yourself to a position in your mind, in your speech with your wife, and all but swearing an oath to do what you want to do, and then subsequently seeking counsel about the matter, is prevalent in this room and amounts to an attempt at manipulation with your brothers and leaders. We must learn to be men who possess genuine conviction that comes from heaven and not mere personal assessment. Come on. Moreover, we must be able to display those convictions with clarity and confidence. Refusing to manipulate the discussion by stacking the deck or committing ourselves to action prior to having tested our revelation against our brothers. Real direction can stand the test of your teams and leaders. Men who plan to do what they want to do and then once they feel like that have it all together, proceed to tell their brothers, well, they are exhibiting symptoms of impure motives and, hear this, distrust of the God who can speak to your brothers as well. Wow, Let's move on to verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you. Because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? The overwhelming evidence of the sovereignty of God in this situation, it's hard to miss. There is debate among scholars as to the age of the young man, because the Greek word can apply to anyone under, that's right, 40 years of age. Yeah. Yeah. In the imagery of the commander taking him by the hand, may suggest that he is very young, right? Can't picture me doing that to Carlos. (laughs) Given that we know Paul comes from a lineage of Pharisees, it is not difficult to imagine that his nephew may have been enrolled in the same kind of education that Paul was in the city of Jerusalem. However, the young man or the boy overheard the conversation, and he then acted quickly on the information that he heard. These seemingly random events are the divine evidence of Yahweh ensuring 
that Paul reaches Rome just as Paul was told to do. We're going to read Psalm 138.8 in the NIV and keep moving. We will. 138.8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Yes, he will. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. In all the events of life that feel random or dismal, you may be able to relate to that if you're human, God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. Continued faithfulness to take the next step of obedience is all that is required on your part. Come on. This should put to rest fears in many of you about when you will reach your ultimate mystery loca- ministry location. Praise God. <laughs> or for others, when you will receive a spouse. Praise God! Yes! Our God has these things in His hands. And we must prove faithful with what has already been given to us. He says, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Do not give in to them, because more than 40 men are waiting waiting in ambush for you. They have taken an oath to not eat or drink until they have killed you. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned, Don't tell anyone what, that you have reported this to me. Someone say again. Again. Again, the sovereignty of God is on display in multiple ways. Oh, yeah. First, the nephew overheard the conversation. Praise God. Second, yeah. the nephew acted quickly with the information. Yeah. Praise God. And third, the commander actually listened to the nephew's instructions. Go nephew! Wow. Wow. Government official of some kind. 
Luke 1, 3 through 4 says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. There it is. That you may have certainty concerning, concerning the things you have been taught. So the title in this passage, or Luke 1, most excellent, or his excellency, are accepted formal addresses to a superior in the first century. That's kind of neat, isn't it? Yeah. Let's go to verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I came with my troops and I rescued him because I learned. Okay, man. That's kind of humorous. We found it humorous, too. The commander very conveniently leaves out the part where he almost scourged Paul in violation of the Roman law, though. But whatever, let's keep going. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. No charge! Here this from Carlos. You're going to want to remember this for the chapters ahead. This verse is complete proof that Paul was innocent of any crimes and that the Romans knew that to be the case. Oh. However, in Adonai's divine will and sovereignty, yes. Paul will spend years in jail <laughs> fulfilling Adonai's purpose for him. Come on, now. At a natural level, this will seem to be the result of greedy officials who desire a bribe and desire to do a favor to the Jews. But all of this will in the end work together in Jehovah's plan to bring Paul to Rome so that he can stand before the emperor. Wow. Let's go to verse 30. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. <laughs> the journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea is approximately 62 miles on ancient roads. The location of Antipatris is thought to be 35 miles outside of Jerusalem. You can find that in any decent commentary. The reason that we are mentioning the distances is that it gives you an idea of how serious the commander was about the threat. He deployed at least half of his troops and sent them on a 35-mile forced march through the night to get Paul where he thought he would be safe. Wow. I don't know when the last time you walked 35 miles was, but that's quite the distance. 32, brother. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with them while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So guys, hear me. We've taken a turn that will not bring us back to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. The events in each successive chapter will all be working in Adonai's purposes to bring us closer and closer to Paul's appointment with Rome. Additionally, you'll see... Two more apologias before the close of the book that round the total out to seven apologias in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. 
The last passage that we want to share with you is from 2 Timothy, and it gives you a glimpse into what these events produce inside of Paul's life. As uh, Pastor Wade comes to close us out, listen to 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, because this is written near the end of Paul's life. He says, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. At the end of Paul's life, only Luke was with him for large portions of time. That's kind of incredible, isn't it? Doesn't that speak to the great need that we all have to form lasting and deep relationships with one another? Amen. The ministries that God is going to bring apart in this body requires those long-lasting friendships to to be had. Now, most of Paul's activities were occupied with the welfare of the churches that had been planted and the arrangement of his sons in ministry. Do you hear him advocating for Mark? At the end of his life? Yeah. See, the process of being in physical bonds no doubt aided him in this focus. From this chapter where we are going in Acts, the book of Acts will close out from here and the entire time Paul spends it in bonds. Those bonds aided him in the focus of building into sons and advocating for their ministries. You see, our favorite part is that many of his other writings during this time frame sound more and more like faithful Barnabas, who first advocated for Paul's ministry. And he spends the rest of his life from this moment advocating for others' ministries. Amen. Come on. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. As we get ready to close, see, I love this because I get to have just a few minutes with my family responding to exactly the same things that you've just heard. So I would like to focus you in on two main concepts, a passage or two that we'll share together, and then we'll pray. The idea of God's absolute sovereignty. That's His ability to work in the situation that you're in. It's His ability to put you in the situation that you're in in order to get out of you what He desires. Amen. 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 How many times have you and I prayed, God let me out of this circumstance as if he wasn't the one that put you in the circumstance? His sovereignty has to be something that we grasp hold of with all that we are. Whether you're talking about Paul's placement in the room not being there by the high priest as part of God's sovereignty, or God's sovereignty by actually appearing to Paul, standing next to him, and instructing him and reminding him of what he needed to do. Did you guys catch one of those slides that was about the four times that Paul saw a vision? You do realize that Paul's visions of Jesus were not always in the easiest of times. In fact, they were in the most difficult times. Further, they were often when Paul had just messed up. Wow. 
Where was he on his way to in Acts 9 when he gets the visit? See, you think that it requires your perfection before he'll come in and meet your need. Yes. But he's sovereign, and he would much rather have you quickly turn, get back on track, and you might find that he'll speak to you more there than anywhere else in your life. His sovereignty and your ability to be able to acknowledge when you've gotten off track and quickly get back on. Not wallow. How did I miss God? You missed him because you're human. Get over yourself. Quickly get back on track and attune your ear because he'll probably speak to you. He'll probably remind you exactly what he called you to. He'll probably remind you again and again and again, like he's had to do with me and every man who wants to be honest about it, of the attitude with which you should carry out the work that he gave you to do. My goodness. See, this starts all the way back with the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Read read the actual story for what it is. When these men get the most powerful encounters with God... It's not because they were just hitting it out of the park before he got there. It was that they needed to be reminded of the sovereignty of God and his purpose in their lives and that their mistakes did not negate his purpose for them. So he appeared to them. So he spoke to them. Generation after generation. They read Psalm 138.8 in the NIV. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, your steadfast love, it endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. If the first part is true is that the Lord will in fact achieve and fulfill his purpose, do you really need to tell him not to abandon the work of his hands? Isn't that kind of like the human part coming out of the psalmist going, he's going to do it. Please help me to do it. He's going to fulfill it for me. Please don't leave me by myself. I, can anybody relate to that in this house? Yeah. yeah, I have two hands up because I can doubly relate to it. One last passage and we'll close. I love the sovereignty of God. And I want to be a man who quickly gets back on track. I don't want to waste not one second, not one minute, whether it's Paul here in Acts 23 whether it's Joshua before the commander of the Lord's army. Who are you for? For us or our enemies? Neither. I'm for the Lord. I repent right now. We should be excellent at repenting and getting back on track because we trust his sovereignty. My final scripture for you is out of 1 Peter 3. You're going to hear both the sovereignty and us quickly getting back on track. Verse 10. Out of the ESV. For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Anybody desire that in here? Let him keep his tongue from evil. And his lips from speaking deceit. And when you do even speak something truthful, but it's not God's will, you quickly repent. Let him turn away from that evil. And do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes, those sovereign eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
and his ears are even open to your prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So don't do evil. Quickly repent. God has called you, church. He's got a purpose for you. If you have been stumbling, tripping, slipping, falling, stand up. Trust that he will not abandon the work of his hands, but he will fulfill his purposes for you. Stand to your feet with me so we can pray. Mighty God, we love you. We honor you as the sovereign ruler of all. You are able to fulfill your purposes for each of us. Lord, so we trust in your steadfast love. We trust in your character. We know that you will not abandon the work of your hand. So we want to quickly get back on track. As we're praying right now, God is going to he's pointing out to some of you where you've gotten off track. Now, the time, now is the time for you to repent right now as we're praying and get yourself back on track from what God has said. You cry out to God. You pray right now. Father, would you forgive me for the many times that I'm getting lost in my circumstances? Lord, and not listening for your spirit that is speaking to me despite of what I see in the natural and what I hear in the natural. Lord, help me to dial in to what your spirit is speaking. Father, you are not in the earthquake. Lord, you are not in the fire. You are not in the storm, Lord God, but it is through the small, small whisper of your voice. Lord, help me to hear you in the small whisper of your voice, Lord God, to discern what your will is. Lord, forgive me, Lord God, for the many times I am trying to forcefully make things happen in my own strength. Lord, help me to dial into what your spirit is speaking in the small whisper of your voice. Not